Well, good morning. It is uh, truly a privilege to be with you all. If we haven't had a chance to, to meet, my name is Jeff Lee. I served uh, with Reform University Fellowship down on the campus at FAU. And uh, as a supporting ministry, as a supporting congregation, always just want to be, uh, be able to publicly express my gratitude for the way in which you've supported us, the way in which you encourage us, the way in which you pray for us. Uh, we are getting ready for a, a new semester to get started. I'm starting to get the text messages from students who are moving back and getting all their, their dorms ready and packing up their houses and all those things. Uh, school starts in about a week at FAU where we'll start uh, full-time uh, reaching students and getting everything underway with, on campus. So uh, it's an exciting time. It's a, it's a little bit, as Adam has mentioned, and as you all are well aware, it's an uncertain time. Uh, last year on campus was was a was a very odd year for ministry. Uh, we're expecting a, a little bit more normalcy this year, but at the same time, we just are full of a little bit of uncertainty. But thankful that the Lord is in control, uh, and no doubt that He'll guide us in the way that we should go. Uh, and not surprisingly, even though last year was a bizarre year, uh, we saw a lot of fruit in the way in which the Lord has connected students with us, and the way in which we've seen uh, students grow in their faith and. Uh, in many ways, it's for such a time like this, all the more reason for us to be on campus, and so we're thankful to be there and grateful for you to send us. This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, the first five verses uh, of that chapter. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there. I'm going to read those five verses, and we will dive in. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and all the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we consider your word this morning and as even has been prayed already, God, we ask that you will be our teacher this morning, that by your spirit our hearts will be softened to the truth of your word, that we'll lay hold of that for which you have laid hold of us in Christ. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of Gander, Newfoundland, which is a fairly small city, exists a significantly large airport. Uh, Gander, Newfoundland, which is a, a small city, very much a, a kind of a, a place that one would not, uh, or I guess I should say is a place that one would have to be very intentional to get to, found itself in a unique position in the early days of aviation. As airplanes started to, to, uh, to commercial air travel started to become a thing and people started to uh, desire a transatlantic crossing, there's a problem that existed that most airplanes could not make it all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. They would need to have a place where they could stop and refuel. And so lo and behold, the last best place for that to happen would be in the city of Gander, Newfoundland. And as a result, the city decided, or that community built, a significant airport which could handle all of the commercial air traffic that would land on that place in order to refuel and to go on about their journey. But as commercial air travel continued to develop and continued to, to evolve, and uh, airplanes are no longer propeller airplanes, but jets that could make the crossing all the way across the Atlantic, all of a sudden Gander, Newfoundland found itself again a forgotten city with a giant airport that really didn't need to be used. Until one particular day, September 11th, 2001, 
As the United States shut down their air travel and shut down the airspace from airplanes coming back into our country out of fear of whether or not this plane is safe for these passengers have been taken over by hostile environment, they needed a place where they could land. There were planes in the air, as you well know, that were told you can't come into the United States. Where do we go? Well, there's a city with a significant airport that could handle a large number of airplanes on their tarmac. And so Gander Newfoundland opened its doors and all of a sudden, 30, 40 planes descended on that city without any planning or any preparation. Planes filled with hundreds of passengers, uncertain about what was happening in the world around them and uncertain about their family back home, all of a sudden found themselves in a place where they hadn't planned to be, with little place to go, little hotels uh, available. The city, the residents, rallied around all of those people. They called them the plain people. They opened their homes. They provided meals. They donated towels and washcloths and their personal bathrooms, their telephones for people to come to sit in their home in the living room to try to make a place, to make a, a sense of, to make a, a phone call home to find a place where they could rest. The city in that moment for those few days showed a remarkable sense of unity around this need of caring for the people who had descended on their place, on their home. If you're interested to learn more of that story, you can read it in a book called The Day the World Came to Town. It's an encouraging story. But what was struck me about that story is the sense of unity that was displayed around this city, around this common theme, the unity to reach out in a sense of love and care and concern transformed lives that day in a way that, uh, that many had never even experienced. How much more so then? As I think about these verses that we read this morning in Colossians chapter 2, the sense of unity that Paul is urging and praying for in the people uh, of this church in the city of Colossae, that he's uh, urging for them to experience a sense of unity around the truth of the gospel. I think unity within the church is one of the most misunderstood themes, but one of the most beautiful aspirations that we could ever attain. And here in this passage this morning, God gives us a vision for unity that is truly worth pursuing, a, a sense of unity that is more profound than what often gets bandied about for our churches to experience. And how much more so as I thought as we read these verses this morning and as we consider the world in which we live, do we not have a desire for a sense of unity? Well, let's look then at these verses this morning. The first thing I want you to see is that in this passage, there's a, there's a great burden that Paul has for the church. The first thing for us to see this morning is the burden Paul has for Christian unity. He begins it in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Here's the Apostle Paul writing from prison, writing to a church that he's probably never visited, mostly a church that he's never, uh, members of a church that he's never met. And he's writing back to them, explaining to them that he has a significant burden, a struggle. It's the same word in Greek from which we get the word agony. He's agonizing over these believers back home in the city of Colossae. And what's he agonizing over? He's agonizing for them to have a sense of unity, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
when Paul thinks of the church back in Colossae, and he thinks of the believers in Laodicea, two separate cities that were nearby one another, the city of Colossae was sort of a, a, an insignificant city. It was, a, it was a small city. And here he's writing to a small church, but he's agonizing and he's burdened for them to reach full maturity in their walk with Christ. And if you notice the way in which he words those, uh, that verse 2 is that the sense of maturity, the full assurance of understanding cannot come in isolation. This isn't something that's going to be experienced by somebody just sitting with their Bible away from Christian community, reading on their own. His great burden for them is that they'll experience this reality together. Their hearts, verse 2, being encouraged, being knit together in love. As you know, in God's word, anytime you read a reference to the heart, the heart isn't the, the, the hallmark version of heart that's just sort of the emotional feeling. It's not the southern version of, oh, you know, bless your heart. The heart is, is the seat of reality of who you are. It's the essence of what it means to be a person. The heart is the full encompassing reality of what it means to be you. And he's writing to the church and saying, my desire is for your heart, the very essence of who you are, the very core of your being, to be encouraged by being knit together. And that's the great burden of the apostle as he's writing back to this church. It's almost a silly question to think about this morning. Do you need to be encouraged? <laughs> how, how longing is the reality that we all have for something encouraging? <laughs> for something to bolster our faith, for something to, to give us a, a sense of purpose to continue on, something that's hopeful, that's joyful. And here as he's writing to these believers, he's calling them to see that a sense of encouragement that he's longing for is going to be experienced in their hearts being knit together. I love, I love that word picture, being knit together, as I think about the, the, the skill that those have that, that knit. I know that some of you in here have that ability and that skill. You think of this giant piece of yarn, whether it's in a ball or just laying about, and through the skill of the person with the needle to knit together this yarn to produce something that's useful, but that's also tight, that holds together, that doesn't easily pull apart. He's looking at the church and he's writing to the church and saying his desire is that that's the experience that they have one with another, to be knit together for the sake of their encouragement and for the full assurance of their faith. So how do we get there? As he thinks about the burden of Christian unity and the burden that he has for this unity, I think we so often fall short in what our interpretation of Christian unity should look like. Uh, as a campus minister working on a college campus, uh, every so often, about once a year, the students on campus will come together and they'll say, you know, I think we, we, need, to, we need to show the campus that we're united, all of the Christians on campus. And what if we had this vision of all of us getting together for a night of worship not a bad thing to do, and sometimes we've done it. But what I've found over the years, and what I've tried to help our students see, is that while that might be a great experience to do, there's something that's, uh, that's often lacking, that's often short-sighted in this one-off experience. Yes, we might feel a sense of unity on that night, but I think within God's Word, there's something that's far more profound, that's far more lasting than a one-off experience that creates an emotional high. But there's a deep-seated conviction of how we relate to one another and the very posture with which we go forward in the world around us 
that leads to a real sense of unity that far transcends any sort of emotional experience of a one-off night, but is the very posture and heart of who we are. Notice what he says in these verses, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. And in that experience then to reach the, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, to be knitted together in love. What does it mean to be knit together in love? Well, I think at the very core, as we think about God's word in 1 Corinthians 13, as he uh, outlines for us what this picture of love looks like, he says, love is patient and love is kind and love does not envy and it does not boast. Have you ever thought and sought to put those words into practice with the people who are closest to you? Let me even go a step further within the church. Maybe the people who easily offend you? The people whose viewpoints don't always line up with yours? To look at those within the closest midst of your experience, maybe even sitting here this morning, maybe even in the same pew. This might get awkward. Love is patient. To speak about them with kindness. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It rejoices in the truth. He says that is a profoundly deeper, more significant way in which we are knit together in love and unity, one for each other. I think you've heard me mention it before. Uh, it struck me whenever I heard Sinclair Ferguson first say it, whenever you read 1 Corinthians 13, to just replace the word love with your own name. And then read what that chapter sounds like. Jeff is patient. Jeff is kind. You almost can't get through the chapter without realizing the conviction of so many ways in which you've fallen short, not even just this week, but maybe even this day. He says, here is the burden that he has for the Christians within the church of Colossae to be united one to another. And it's not just in this experience of love, but it's out of that place in which they're united, he says in then verse 2 and 3, that it's where they'll experience the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. All of the wisdom, all of the treasures are hidden in Christ. Have you ever thought about how, you know, articles have been written about this, how we often now treat our smartphones as though within them are contained all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If I don't know the answer, I can just look it up. I can just type it. We carry with us this, this computer that has all of the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge, or at least so we assume. Paul looks at it, the believers in the church and says, no, 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 no. All of the treasures and wisdom are hidden in Christ. Do you believe it? Do you see what happens within a body of believers as they're united together in love with this posture uh, surrounding the reality that within Christ, we are united around this reality of a posture of love towards one another because what we found together collectively is that within Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is a vision of unity that has the power 
to truly influence the world around us and the communities in which we find ourselves. The story is uh, told in the, in the early days of, uh, of the ministry of George Whitfield. That as George Whitfield was preaching in England, a passerby saw David Hume, one of the greatest skeptics and atheists of the day, going to listen to George Whitfield. And the passerby said to David Hume, why are you going to listen to George Whitfield? You don't believe a thing that he says. He said, no, but he does. But he does. The conviction within Christ are hidden all of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So that's the great burden that Paul has for the church. That's the great burden for for unity that he has as he looks and he writes back to these believers in Colossae. But here's the second way I think in which we can see this unity play out is that he calls us to see that unity is found in the narrow way of the gospel. Unity is found in the narrow way of the gospel. And it comes by way of warning. He says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, unity is going to be found in the narrow way of the gospel. And I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that there are some in your midst who are seeking to delude you, to get you off track, to make you lose your way from the narrow truths of the gospel in order to disrupt the unity within the very church. We don't really know, uh, looking back historically, who the false teachers were that had infiltrated the church. Paul is writing from prison. He had gotten a report uh, from those who had come to visit him of false teachers who were making an impact within the church. We do know in the first century that eloquence and skill and the, the, the ability of the rhetoricians of the day to command a following uh, was sort of a, was sort of a, a social media influencer of the first century, if you will. If you could speak, if you could command an audience, if you could have a following, well, it'd be very easy then to sway those people within the first century church. I think it's tempting to read these verses today and to kind of look back with a little bit of arrogance and to think, how, how could you be so susceptible to being led astray by false arguments? I kind of tend to think, I, I, think I, could, I think I could smoke it out. I think I would be not so gullible or so susceptible, but... Don't we find ourselves living in a world that's very susceptible (laughs) to the news and the media and to all sorts of uncertainty? In 2018, apparently according to dictionary.com, for whatever they're worth, uh, dictionary.com said the word of the year was misinformation for 2018. This is three years ago. Misinformation. And they make a, a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is that which you believe and you sincerely believe it, but it's just not true. As opposed to disinformation, is that what you know to be false and you're seeking to spread it in order to delude others around you. Either way, how often do we hear those two words surrounding our culture today? You only need to watch the news or check your social media feed to see the fear of misinformation and disinformation. And how many times I've heard my friends and colleagues, and I've reflected myself, I just wish I, wish I knew what <laughs> was reality. <laughs> I wish what, I knew what was really going on. And how easy we are to become uh, swayed by opinions on matters that really aren't primary issues of the gospel. And don't we need to hear again this morning as the Apostle Paul looks at these believers in Colossae. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What's he calling them to do? To be united around the truths of the gospel found in the narrow way of what God 
has so ordered our lives in reality. What are those realities? That there's a God who's the creator of the universe. That in his wisdom, he created a world uh, that reflects his beauty and it reflects his order and reflects his purposes. But as you know, sin has entered the world. And not just sin hypothetically, my sin and your sin has disrupted and disordered the very world in which this, the, God of the, the God of the Bible has created. Sin hasn't not just corrupted the world in which we live, but it's corrupted our relationships with one another. And so we look at each other with suspicion and fear and hostility. All of the anger, all of the vitriol, all of the fighting, all of the shootings, all of the bad news that surfaces is all a result of sin. Not just sin against one another, but also sin and rebellion against God. That our sin has destroyed our relationship with the very God of the universe who's created this world in its beauty and in, its, in, its, uh, and in his wisdom. And yet, even in that reality, he hasn't left us in our sin. As he just calls us to see in verse 2, all of the riches that are in Christ, God has sought to reconcile sinful human beings with himself. He has sent his son in order to redeem the world from their sin, in order to bring reconciliation. And one day he promises he will restore. One day he'll restore all of the brokenness that we experience around us where sin will be uh, will be destroyed and death will be no more and sickness and evil and disease and frustration with one another will no longer be part of the new heavens and a new earth in which he's restoring the world to because of the work of Christ. He calls us to see that is the central reality of who we are in Christ. And while we might differ in perspectives and opinions on other issues and other matters and other things, central to that core identity is who we are. And so he calls us to see, let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Let no one delude you to where you become disunited from the church in which he has united you together in Christ. His burden, his agony for the church is that they remain strong and faithful to one another. Whether you think of whatever your opinions are of COVID or political issues or whatever the matters are of the day. God is calling to himself in Christ people from every tribe and nation and language and people and uniting them even in this world. And he's one of the most beautiful pictures that he has of the new heavens and the new earth of our hope to, to come is that experience of unity that we can have even now. And so if the burden for Paul as he's writing to this church in Colossae is that they be united, and if he's warning them against this, this sense of being uh, led astray by plausible arguments, the third thing I think we should see and take note of this morning is that unity really is possible in the church. Unity really is possible in the church. I think that's important for us to note that this isn't just a hypothetical idea. This isn't just a, a grandiose dream, but this is a reality that can be achieved and has been achieved and often is as God's people are, uh, gather in realities around the truths of the gospel, he says in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What I love about these verses is the fact that, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, here's Paul writing. He's only gotten a, a report of the, of, of the church in Colossae. We believe that the church was probably planted by Epaphras who heard the gospel preached in Ephesus as Paul was planting the church there. And he took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae in order to plant this church among their midst. And as he 
Paul, that is, receives a report of the church in Colossae, not everything is bad news. Yes, there's false teachers. Yes, there's a possibility of them being deluded. But at the same time, there's a positive report that comes that these believers, well, they're still united around the truths of the gospel that have been implanted in Epaphras through the preaching of Paul. And you can see the joy in which he writes back as he's anticipating being able to, to see them and to visit them and to rejoice in their good order. Not just in the city of Colossae, but also in the city of Laodicea. At the very end of this letter, Paul says to the Colossians, send this letter to the Laodiceans and ensure that the Laodiceans uh, send you the letter that I wrote to them as well. It's a letter we no longer have in existence. But there's no competition in the mind of Paul between these two churches. It's not as though it's a zero-sum game that for Colossae to do well, that the church in Laodicea has to struggle or vice versa. He's hoping to see that both congregations, both churches flourish in the realities of of the truth of God's word, and that even at a distance of two different congregations, they're united together around this reality of their hope and the gospel in their life being transformed. I rejoice to see, he says, the good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Together, he's calling them to see. The power of the gospel can be known and can far exceed what one person can achieve on their own when they're united in this effort with each other. I was reminded of this as we watched the Olympics this year. Uh, A lot of the early part of the Olympics, uh, my family and I, we uh, sadly had contracted COVID and so we were home in quarantine and so it's kind of like, what are you going to do? We'll watch the Olympics every night. We don't normally watch that much of the Olympics, uh, but we did this year. Uh, and one of the one of the early um, one of the early events that we got to watch was the rowing c- competitions. Uh, it is remarkable to see because, as the news can only do, uh, as they as they sought to put a reporter on the scene and to get the experience of what it's like to row one of these boats, the reporter gets in the boat and as she's trying to row, she's just in the middle of the of the lake, like just going in circles, trying to figure out how to get the paddles, to, you know, the oars to work together and how to get the boat to go straight. And then they cut to the competition, and here in this boat that's 65 feet long with eight people in it pulling together in unison with one another are flying across the lake as if it's got a motor attached to it. It's a remarkable, beautiful picture to see of what happens when a group is together, united, pulling together in the same direction. And it'd be silly to imagine what would happen if one of those rowers, if she just decided, I want to go in a different direction. Or if one of them decided, I want to be in a more prominent position if they got off kilter because they wanted to be the center of attention. And that sort of experience of just that one Olympic event, you can see what happens when everyone is united on mission of what they've been called to do. Working together, pulling in the same direction. And here's the experience that Paul is seeing, even in this church in Colossae. It's not a big church. It's not a significant church. They don't have all of the bells and whistles that probably some of the bigger churches that Paul had planted experienced. But what he's called them to see is that they do have an ability to be united together and a love for one another because of their love for Christ. The words of the old hymn get it right. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and two, one hope she presses with every grace endued. 
Think about God's call on even this congregation, even at Lake Osborne Presbyterian Church, as your relationship with one another. What is God calling us to see even this morning in Colossians chapter 1? That the burden of unity is a worthy calling to be united with one another in your relationships, not just with each other, but born out of your relationship with Christ. United towards one another in a posture of love and a heart for one another and together positioned as you are, facing out into the community in which you live, is a far more profound uh, vision of unity than just an emotional experience or just a posture of, of, a, of, a, of a word or a language that's used, but actually a way in which these are the realities that define us. We know of our own sin, and we have found redemption in Christ. And out of that reality, the love that we have for one another is far more profound than any that we've ever experienced in any other human relationship. And in so doing, seeking to go forward with the message of the gospel to make known the mystery and the glories of that which is ours in Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are grateful that you have called us out of darkness and into light. And God, we pray that even this morning as we consider your word and as we consider the relationships of those even in our midst, whether they're those who are in this room or those to who we have contact each week, that God, you'll call us to lay down uh, our own desires, our own uh, our own intentions to be self-serving, but that united to one another will seek to truly know and to love and to care for those around us because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf for us. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.